Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey guys, welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny with Kristen and Jen. This is Kristen and I'm Jen. Jen. How are you? How are you? I've missed you. (laughs) I know. You've been hiding from me for What's what 24 times three been like, not it. I basically just scream into the void. So basically the text chain I have with Jen is like all the random crap that I think. And I just text it to her. So she probably has, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of messages that is just literally stream of consciousness from Kristen. And then she's like, I'm off doing my own stuff with my kids. Like, give me a call. <laughs> For those of you who do not have kids, there is a rule of the universe that is unflagging. And it's the more you pay to educate your children, the less days they will Mm -hmm. actually spend in school. So my kids are in private school and they just had fall break. And it's funny because when I went to Princeton, we had fall break too. And that was not Mm -hmm. something that I was accustomed to from my secondary education, I guess. And it's funny because they said fall break at Princeton was implemented in preparation for elections. So kids could like go out and be proactive politically, I guess, in the 70s. And now it's basically just that my kids who spent the first two months of school learning how to do school can totally undo all Mm -hmm. the good that was done in the first, whatever it was, six weeks of lessons. Yeah, Um, But so unfortunately I've been a little off the grid, but I'm back, baby. Woo-hoo. I know. I and I, even though it's the middle of the week, I, I want to know how your weekend was because I haven't even heard about that. <laughs> oh, I, so you'll actually, this is like ridiculous. I, I need to send you some videos. So the neighborhood we moved into, I really feel like we won the jackpot because Aww. there are just so many families with weirdly three kids. Like in the city, nobody has three kids. We were like the unicorn. Oh, can can have, you have to be a billionaire. Okay. In the a billionaire. City we just three shoved kids. three into our single one room, but <laughs> everyone here has three kids and they're all the same age as ours. One of the families had this party, just a neighborhood party. And uh-huh. so it was raining so that people would be hanging out just in the kitchen and the kids were in the basement. And then they had like beer pong in the garage and so you were we playing were, beer pong. Wait, I don't think yeah. I've ever seen you play beer pong. Are you good? I played it with you at Princeton when I remember we. I went for spring break. <laughs> I said I oh spent my I'm such a bad break at Princeton. But no, oh so God. um, so we were playing. Right, so this was with water in the in the cups. This was not like legit ping pong. I mean, we were drinking white claws or whatever. But the so you were drinking white claws, but playing beer pong with water. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 
Okay, makes, just to be clear. Yes. So it was and, a hydration game. Exactly. Well, no, you weren't drinking the water. The water was just sort of there. No one would drink the water. The water was disgusting at this point. But okay. then the kids started to come in and play. So like oh my, my daughter was playing beer pong with her two other little best friends from her kindergarten with class. With water that she wasn't water. drinking. Yeah. And meanwhile, my one-year-old is like obsessed with balls. I literally had to order a like carton of balls because she like just like loves them. I And most kids, I mean, she's my third. So I know for the most part, like when kids can throw. My other kids, when they threw, they would, it would go behind their head. They would like get ready to throw and they'd be like, where'd the ball go? She like chucks that thing. She has really good aim. And so she's just like running around grabbing the ping pong balls, like throwing it at people. And then she'd be there like pretending to throw. It was really cute. Actually. I should send you a picture. I have so many questions. Um, I need to see these videos. Mm -hmm. I I feel like we're going to start a controversy about exposing our kids to college drinking games before they're even through. Well, they didn't, in fairness, there was no beer in the, in the cups. It was to them just a game with balls and water. So, but yeah, I mean, so confused when they actually see a ping pong table with paddles, they're gonna be like, this is not how it's played. Get out the cups. I know. No, no, no. Like, what is this thing? So anyway, so it was really fun. Rainy day drinking games with kids. Sounds very, very culturally appropriate. Uh, Well, Kristen, that's actually a nice little segue that you probably didn't plan into our episode today. So one of the things that we wanted to talk about, we get lots of questions about what it's actually like when you start on the job. What we wanted to talk about in today's episode is the economics of starting the job. And we don't just mean any job. We mean a job in the financial services industry or financial services industry adjacent. So anything Mm -hmm. from investment banking, and we mean any division within an investment bank, consulting, probably in a PL generated hedge funds, yeah, asset management potentially, depending on what kind of buy side firm you're working at. So really anything in the overall capital W, capital S, Wall Street world we've been talking about to include venture capital, which we talked about in last week's episode. And we're going to be focusing the majority of our conversation about experiences in New York City. And why is that? Well, it's pretty much the world's largest financial hub. You've got London, you've got Tokyo, you've got Singapore, you've got Hong Kong, you've got San Francisco, Charlotte, secondary cities in the U.S. Our personal experience was in New York City. And so many firms, even if you are going to be working in another city down the line, you may still do your training in New York City potentially. So we're going to focus our conversation on New York City. If you are working elsewhere though, definitely keep listening because I think that there's some universal tips in here that go beyond the process of renting an apartment in New York City that will will be helpful as you think about it. And by the way, it also could just be that you want to sit here and listen to how expensive the New Yorkers have it and you're sitting there laughing like, I don't have to deal with that. So there's that too. Anyone who's living in Des Moines, Iowa, if you want to sit here and laugh at how stupid New Yorkers are for paying an exorbitantly (laughs) high cost of living, this is definitely the place for you for some schadenfreude. But so when you hear the starting pay on Wall Street, sometimes it sounds like a ton of money. I mean, Kristen, you and I grew up in the era where like, if you make six figures, if you make over $100,000, like you've made it, right? Like Mm -hmm. you must be rich. And now starting salaries for pretty much anyone at the analyst level, an associate level is going to be over six figures. First year pay for starting analysts before any kind of performance-based compensation or signing bonus is mm-hmm. going to be pretty much above 100K. And we'll get into some specifics here in a second. Right. But what's so crazy is the cost of living and the barriers to entry are so high just to even set foot in the office day one of that job. So let's talk about the Which mechanics of how that insane. actually yeah. happens. It yeah. totally sounds insane, 
right? But it's reality. And I mean, just to add one extra little data point, there was an article that came out in, I think it was a few months ago, that was a Bloomberg article. And they ran a study just looking at how far $100,000 went in different cities. And in New York City, which is, by the way, the most expensive city in the world, the $100,000 that you would earn was the equivalent of $37,000 elsewhere. Now you might say like, well, how are we measuring that? Because Jen, you asked that question. If it's $37,000 in New York, like where is it 100? The one little data point is that Memphis, Tennessee, $100,000 was the equivalent of $86,000. So they Mm -hmm. looked at taxes and cost of living, right? The cost of housing and food and all that. And they basically said, how far does that $100,000 go? So the, the moral of the story is that like, it doesn't go that far. It's like, we're using different units. Right. Mm-hmm. In New York City, $100,000, it's like you have different units than if you were elsewhere. You so. have to apply like an overlay of a conversion factor. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Again, mm-hmm. in Memphis dollars. This yeah, is yeah, yeah. The, the exactly. New York Memphis FX market. I know. Uh, we're going to start that market on this podcast. Seriously. Um, Kristen, you ran some numbers on what first-year associates and first-year analysts are typically getting paid on Wall Street. And again, this is capital W, capital S that we're talking right. about right now. So generally speaking across the curve, yeah. what is typical base pay? So the base salary as of 2023, so that's when we're recording, but base salary for an analyst is going to be in the hundred dollars to $125,000 range. Again, that's without any sort of like performance-based compensation, any signing bonus, any of that, but that's your base salary. So remember, an analyst is someone who has just graduated from undergrad and is coming in. They're probably going to be like 22, whereas an associate is often going to be like 25, 26. They're often going to have gone through the two-year analyst program, maybe three, and then they start as an associate or they work a few years, go to business school for two years, and then enter the workforce that way. In so, which case, they're a little bit older. They're probably which, closing they're, on 30. Yeah, anywhere between like 26 to 30, exactly. So their salary is going to be $175,000 to $225,000. That's basically Which again, salary. sounds yeah. like so much money. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, but, let's actually just add quickly, for those associates who are starting, don't forget, they not only probably have their undergrad student loans, they have hundreds of thousands of dollars of business school student loans as well. That's a really good point. So let's walk through a little bit of the mechanics for both first-year analysts and first-year associates. You typically get a signing bonus, Mm -hmm. and that actually hasn't changed for context when we're talking about these numbers. When Kristen and I started our careers, I started in 2006, she started in 2007. My base pay was something like $60,000, and I think I have like a $10,000 signing bonus. Mm -hmm. So first-year analyst salary has doubled over the past 17 years, but the signing bonus is pretty much unchanged. It's like ten dollars to $15,000 for first-year analysts. For an analyst, right? yeah. It looks like for yeah. an associate, it's going to be in the fifty dollars to $60,000 signing bonus range, but ten dollars to $15,000 for an analyst, which as we're going to get into, basically you're not going to be able to get an apartment for that. Well, so Meaning, let's, let's explain. Yeah. yeah, let's exactly The startup costs. How yeah. much of that signing bonus and that base salary you can expect to have as liquid cash on hand that first year. Mm -hmm. So let's walk through that math first. Yeah. So this gets us into the whole taxes discussion. So when we talk about taxes, this is something that I was shocked by. It's like that Friends episode where I think Rachel gets her first check and she's like, who's this FICA guy and why did he take all my money? Right, right, right. in general, you're going to have federal taxes, then usually state taxes, and then In New York, you also get the added element of city taxes. So obviously federal taxes apply to everyone. It's a progressive tax structure in the US. You're going to go from like 22% to 37% of your earnings are going to get taxed through the federal government. 
here's the thing. There is like higher tax states. And so the New York state tax is going to be anywhere from 4% to 10.9%. But then you also have the city tax on top of that. And there's this weird rule in New York that a lot of times if you have a bonus, the state and the city will automatically hold back a certain percentage. So let's pretend you get your $10,000 signing bonus. Yay. Mm -hmm. Guess what? The state is going to take 11% of that right off the bat. And the city is going to take 4.25%. So 15% of that gone. Now, by the way, we had the nice dramatic death knell (laughs) tolling in the background of, I think like another tree being taken down. It was like, good, good, good. I'm thinking about the government taking all your money. Seriously. But so now that $10,000, $1,500 is gone to the city and the state. You will get that back when you file your taxes. So your actual tax rate that you ultimately pay is going to be less, but it doesn't matter because as a first year analyst, you're like, I need to get a house. It's We're not go through liquid all that. cash well, it's on not liquid. day right. one. You so have to, you have to wait a, a year. Bonus. That makes you think like, this is the check I'm walking out of the <laughs> offer $10,000. No, 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 no. And usually the default is that you're going to get taxed at the federal level in the thirties. So you're going to expect of a $10,000 signing bonus you're going to get 5,000 of that. Now, as and I so that's saying, a good rule of thumb. So you're basically going to keep about 50% of whatever it is that you're getting paid, at least in terms right. of liquid cash up front. For bonuses, you, especially. Yeah. Unless you adjust your withholding. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm not sure. I don't think most people think to be like, yeah, I'm getting my signing bonus. Can I talk to HR about changing my withholding for the signing bonus? Whatever your signing bonus is, just expect that you're going to be walking away with actually 50% of that. That signing bonus is not liquid cash that's going to all go in your pocket right away. You might get that refund back when you file your taxes next April, but you have to wait a year for that. I found out that I could change the withholding so I could actually specify I want this percentage to be withheld. So I could try to match closer to what the effective rate was going to be all in. And so I did that for a couple of years and it was nice because it meant I didn't have to wait over a year to get that liquidity, to get that cash. Now, for New York State, you cannot change the withholding of your city or your state. I think the default is it's going to withhold 15% regardless of what you try to do. So be aware that you might be able to play with the federal. I don't think you can play with the city or state. It's a New York law. I'm pretty sure. I did double check that with a tax expert. They were pretty sure. (laughs) But so the point is, generally speaking, of let's call it for a nice round number, $10,000 signing bonus that you're going to get. You can expect to see $5,000 day one. Yeah. Of the $100,000 that you might expect to see in your base salary year one, you might be seeing closer to 50, 60, something in that 70, range, $1,000, yeah. maybe $70,000. Yeah, usually your, usually your base salary, it's going to be a little bit closer to what the effective rate probably is. It's the bonus that really you get dinged on. And and again, it's like you get dinged, you get that money back, but this is a liquidity problem, right? We talk about this in Finance 101. When I teach accounting, when I teach building financial models, just because you earn something doesn't mean that's cash in your pocket. We are talking about the actual cash that you have to live your life. And so, especially as a first-year analyst, where you're going to get the healthcare costs, where you get the student loans, right? You have all these costs and all these expenses, that cash flow and that liquidity is an important thing. So when you start in the city, you're typically going to start within three weeks of graduation. I graduated from college on June 6th, and I was expected to set foot in the front door of Lehman Brothers to report for training within three weeks. And so what that means is you need to acquire housing, clothes, 
figure out your budget for food, and figure out your transportation. We're going to kind of get into those four categories over the course of this discussion. And so housing in New York, you um, have to have been living under a rock your entire life to not know that Manhattan rents are expensive. But first Mm -hmm. of all, let's just talk about the structure of New York City. Let's back up and think about Mm -hmm. how New York City is oriented because so much of how it's oriented is Effects. one of the things mm-hmm. that impacts valuation. Yes. Just like any city, you know, you always hear real estate agents talking about like location, location, location. Mm-hmm. So New York City, this may be reviewed, but there's five boroughs within New York City. The majority of the financial services industry is all concentrated within one borough, and that's Manhattan. Now, you may have offices in Brooklyn. You may have satellite offices in Jersey City. There may be some firms. Exactly. There may be some firms that have locations in Stamford, Connecticut. But let's assume that your office is most likely going to be in Manhattan. So the two primary concentrations of financial services industry firms are either going to be in Midtown which again, thinking about New York City as a long peninsula, it's going to be about halfway down. And then the financial district, which is Mm -hmm. at the very bottom of that peninsula. There's going to be other firms that are scattered throughout, but for the most part, you can reliably assume that if you're working for a big firm, you're likely going to be in either of those locations. So regardless of whether you are starting off as a first-year analyst or a first-year associate, one of the things that's going to be critical is being in the office And we can talk about the world we'd like to live in versus the world we do live in. We can Mm -hmm. all say, hey, listen, if I just show up and I get my work done, isn't that enough? But so much about this job is perception. And when you're just starting out and you're only able to add so much value at the beginning, one of the ways that you can really show you care and are dedicated to your job is showing up early in the morning. So we'll get to the nuances of transportation in a bit. But the bottom line is, is you want to be relatively close to your office. So odds are, even though it's super expensive, you're going to be renting a home in Manhattan, even though it's the most expensive of the five boroughs to live in. There are parts of Brooklyn that are more expensive than parts of Manhattan, but generally speaking, exactly. Generally speaking, you're probably going to be renting either an apartment in Manhattan or in some cases, Brooklyn. Now, renting in other cities is a pretty easy process, generally speaking. Maybe you go on Craigslist or Zillow and you see some places for rent. You wander around to all the mid-rise and high-rise apartment buildings and say, hey, how many vacancies do you have? And you meet with a leasing agent and they show you a couple and you go house shopping for a day or two to find a rental. And it's generally not that burdensome a process. New York City has a scarcity of housing and you've got very, very few apartments in locations that you like to live in that are a reasonable commute to work. And there are structural inefficiencies put in place to make this even more expensive than it would be in other cities. So if you can even find a vacant apartment that's not infested with roaches, that has air conditioning, I mean, forget about getting a washer and dryer in the unit. I mean, that is a major luxury. But even just the basics of a kitchen, right? Kristen, you said that one of the apartments you lived in had like a mini fridge, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't even have like a fully working kitchen. So it was a half fridge. You have some buildings with communal bathrooms. I mean, guys, it can be bleak. So let's say that you find an apartment that's available that meets your criteria. Well, guess what? In New York City, there can be rental fees associated with renting a home. And that can be in a number of different forms. You can go to a dedicated apartment building that is only rentals, but they charge a fee. You could try to rent from a private landlord 
who has hired a broker to represent them. And you have to pay that agent even if they don't represent you. Yeah. And so then in other words, you, you go around and you find yourself an apartment, like you see an mm-hmm. apartment on Craigslist, you go see it. And then you find out there is a broker on the other side. Guess who's paying that broker fee? You are. You then have to write a check. And the third scenario is one in which you actually are represented by a renter's agent yes. whom you also have to pay. Yeah. And so let's talk about what those fees look like. A fee can typically be up to about 15% of one year's rent. So if you're renting something for $5,000 a month, which we'll get into the average rental cost in a second here, but that may sound like a lot. It's not. If you're renting something for $5,000 a month, that's $60,000 a year, 15% of that is $9,000 and you need to write that check day one. So let's get back to our signing bonus math. Mm-hmm. If you were left with $5,000 of liquid cash from that signing bonus, <laughs> you don't have the money to even pay the fee for the right to rent your apartment. And so, we haven't even talked security deposit yet as we get into liquidity. Exactly. So just... You've got, you might have first and last month's rent due. You have your security deposit, all this fun stuff. So already we're in a liquidity crunch and we haven't even set foot on the training floor, let alone the trading mm-hmm. floor. By the way, this is why you might want to look for no-fee rentals, but if you find a no-fee rental, the rent's going to be higher because even though you're not paying a fee, it's just baked into the monthly rent. So it's no fee, but you you kind of are paying it. So Right. So there's the issue of fee, no fee. And Kristen, you're exactly right. Even if you aren't paying that fee upfront, if you go to a no-fee building, you may find that it's leveraged over the life of the rent. That helps you with your liquidity a little bit, but you'll see that there may be a relative rent discrepancy on a month-to-month basis between fee and no-fee rentals, and that's where that comes from. They probably usually on-site leasing agent or something. Right. Usually you can get a better quality building, a better quality apartment, renting from a private landlord. And and as a 22-year-old, you might not care as much like, oh, I want the fancy refrigerator and the fancy appliances. You're like, I just want a place to live and I'm going to not be spending a lot of time here because I'm going to be in the office so much anyway. But yeah, you can typically get better quality apartments for less if you're renting directly from a landlord, but you are going to have that broker fee associated with it. So most people tend to try to go for those no-fee buildings just mm-hmm. know that it's probably going to be a little bit more expensive on a monthly basis. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so speaking of, of paying on a monthly basis, so there's this old rule and I don't know who made it up. Okay. This is not like the rule of 72 that was like written on some ancient stone tablet or whatever during the Italian Renaissance. Jen, Jen, it was so funny. So I, for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, there's something called the rule of 72. You can use this shorthand calculation. If you have an investment and you grow your money, say two or three X, you can quickly convert it to like, what is the IRR? And I was doing this video on it and I said it to Jen, she's like, what is this rule of 72? Where did this come from? And so I'm like, in 1575, the you know this philosopher, this like mathematician. I need to know. I need to know who came up with it. Is this like the Pythagorean theorem, or is this like Bob's rule of 72 that someone got on Google? Yeah. And so (laughs) again, this is Bob's rule of 28. I have no idea where this comes from, but. It's like an old adage that you should probably spend something like 28% of your monthly income on your housing expenses. So again, let's do a little bit of math. Let's say you're And by the way, is that after tax? Is that after tax or pre-tax monthly income? Pre-tax, I think. I know, right? You got to ask Bob. I know. If it's if it's after tax, you are beyond screwed. If it's pre-tax, <laughs> it still doesn't hold water in Manhattan because let's walk through this. So we looked this up. So as of September 2023, and by the way, rents have come down since the summer. Manhattan's mm-hmm. on a summer rental cycle. If you ever want to be a landlord, here, hot real estate tip for you. Okay, you want to be on a summer rental cycle because people get on that summer rental cycle when they come out of college and stay on that rental cycle in perpetuity. So you want yeah. to be on like an April 
through August lease renewal schedule. If you start to get into the fall, like the worst time to have a lease expire is like Jan 1. Like yeah, not oh, New yeah. Year's Eve and someone's like, time to go get a new apartment, right? Or like, I want to move into my new place on Christmas. Mm-hmm. So yeah. anyways, rents were higher on average over the summer, but we looked this data up yesterday. So as of September, 2023, the average cost of a studio apartment in Manhattan was $3,500 a month. A one bedroom was $4,200 a month. A two bedroom, $5,300 a month. And a three bedroom was something like $6,300 a month, which by the way, was down from seven grand over the summer. So if we go back to that example of a first-year analyst who's getting paid $120,000 a year in base salary, their monthly salary is $10,000 a month. Let's go back to our rule of 28. Let's say I want a nice one-bedroom apartment. Not even a nice one, just an average one. And I would like to have a separate room that designates my kitchen from my bedroom. Okay, I'm going to be paying $4,200 a month. That's before any fees, any security deposit, all those liquidity issues we talked about. If our rule is 28% of your monthly income, I'm SOL. Mm-hmm. I'm getting close to 50% of my monthly income at this point. And I haven't even bought food. I haven't even bought clothing. And I, I'm assuming I'm walking everywhere. This math does not work in Manhattan. The only way to start getting some relief is to get roommates. Yes. And you will find that most first-year analysts and first-year associates get roommates in the city. Yep. And so, listen, everyone has different feelings about roommates. Kristen, you and I, we always joke, like, we're both messy. We'd either yeah. make the best roommates or, like, the universe would explode if we were roommates. <laughs> I had a roommate who was my roommate from college. This mm-hmm. I've talked about Laura so much on this podcast. This wonderful woman, Laura, who was a great roommate. We'll have her on the podcast at some point when we can figure out how to work the nonprofit <laughs> niche into the Wall Street criteria. We actually got along really well. And we were so lucky, guys. We found a two-bedroom two bathroom apartment that we were able to rent for $4,000 a month. The average monthly rent for a two bedroom, two bathroom apartment now is about 25% more expensive than we were paying. Now, this apartment also had some considerations. It abutted a Thai food restaurant. So I literally had to crawl into the ventilation system and install barriers to keep my, and I love Thai food by the way, but this was not the good Thai food smell. This was Garlic like from the, the depths of hell. Yeah. Oh my god! Like well, any of the thing, Thai any food. any food smells great when it's in, like first cooked. As it starts to sit there, it's yeah. terrible. Like it's then you're like, oh. I sometimes exactly. my parents will make dinner and then it smells great when it's cooking, and then you wake up at three in the morning and you're like, oh, what's that smell? And it's like the old food smell, like or God forbid you make fish. And then the next morning you walk out into your kitchen and if it wasn't properly ventilated, you're like, oh. So, you know, we had the Thai food smell. It wasn't really a full service building and full service meaning doorman, some kind of secured entry. This was really like some dude sitting behind a desk for a couple hours a day. So there were reasons why we were able to get this for what was relatively an affordable amount at the time. But it's still I also think like a you ton just of got, money. Well, you guys also just got lucky because true story, when I went looking for apartments, we looked in Jen's building and it was well above that for a two yeah. bedroom. And that well, and time. that was a year later during the peak of the housing That's true. bubble. So That's you true. were looking I was, I was in the seven. summer of 2007 when right. it was literally the actual peak of the housing it bubble was. at the time. I know. Yes, so, this is true. We actually lived through a cycle, which is very, very rare in New York City, that our rent went down from yeah. year to year after the class yeah. of 08. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People just like say, don't change. Brother. They're like, great news. Yeah. Financial yeah. collapse. Your don't rent leave. won't go up. Yeah. Like they won't <laughs> cut your rent usually. They'll well, my brother. Like, no increase. Because 
My brother, this was in 2020. So it was like the COVID. And then we had obviously a mass exodus. He got this like really nice one bedroom. It mm. went from like 4,200 to 2,800. And yeah, they had he some moved COVID in specials. And he moved in with his girlfriend. So he's like, my rent went from 4,200 to 1,400. It's like, I had the best deal ever. <laughs> yeah. How much fun living in New York City during COVID. Best deal <laughs> yeah. ever. So that's kind of speaking to the efficiencies of roommates, if you will. <laughs> You will find, talking through those different price points, you will find that the highest efficiencies are in the one and two bedroom space typically. And the best way to take advantage of the efficiencies in the one bedroom space is to build or somehow construct a wall, which is what you did, Kristen, right? I did, yes. When I moved in, we got a one bedroom for $3,600 and we did one of the no fee buildings, but we still had to do first month's rent, last month's rent. And we needed to build a wall. So you can like install this fake barrier in your living room and essentially convert a one bedroom to a two bedroom. But it was at least a thousand dollars, if not more. Mm -hmm. There's a possibility they were made illegal at some point for like fire safety reasons, but I need to look into that. I think people it's are still quite doing possible something that like they, that. Yeah. That they have cracked down on those from a building code standpoint. However, <laughs> There's no law against curtains. Right. And my now husband, when he rented his first apartment as a first-year associate fresh out of business school, lived behind a curtain in his living room that he shared with his roommate in their one-bedroom, one-bath apartment. So yeah. there are plenty of people in New York City, whether or not walls are still acceptable by building code, who are mm -hmm. sharing one-bedroom apartments. And yeah, that yeah. works well. You can also come up with a similar arrangement in a two-bedroom where you split it three ways and someone lives yeah, oh in yeah. a converted living That's room pretty, that way. Basically, whenever it, when you're a first-year analyst, you're probably taking whatever the number of bedrooms are initially given to you and you're somehow adding a bedroom because it's just going to exactly. make it a little more economical. Shoving another person in there, whether we're calling it a bedroom or not, is, uh, is yeah. debatable. So again, just to review, studios, not economical. One yeah. bedroom, you need to split with a roommate. Two bedroom can be okay if you get lucky and you might be able to split a two bedroom if you can If get you can find one. If you can find one. They're hard one, to find. Yeah. They are. They are. So most people will find themselves in, again, some kind of converted one bedroom for their first year. Do not bother and with a three bedroom. It's just a non-starter. Yeah. So just to give a little extra context, post-COVID, there has been a trend that's been happening, which is especially people who are maybe a little bit older, they want more space. So you have, whether it's families who have children or whether it is you've been working for a few years and you want a place to work from home, they tend to want like the two bedrooms. They're able to afford it. So mm -hmm. there's just less supply. That's yeah. a really good point. We keep talking about these average price points. We know that they are not consistent without the city. And I think that mm -hmm. that's something that we need to talk about now in terms of transportation, commute, and different areas of the city from a relative value standpoint. And that's where we're going to find some of those optimizations and where some of those numbers are just not going to be achievable. When we say the city, we're talking about Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And Manhattan itself is laid out as a grid, kind of mm -hmm. like your favorite, Kristen, an Excel spreadsheet. Yay! Okay. And so your rows are called streets. Your mm -hmm. columns are called avenues. The city is split roughly in half vertically by Park Avenue, which divides the west side from the east side. And then streets are numbered in ascending order, starting from the bottom. Although in the lower tip of Manhattan in the financial district, you lose that grid shape and you just have street names. And yeah. then the avenues so like are numbered. Street. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. The avenues are numbered in ascending order going from right to left. And on the right-hand side of the island, you have avenues that are lettered. And you'll sometimes mm -hmm. hear 
the Lower East Side called like Alphabet City, where you've yeah. got Avenue C, B, A, things like that. So by the way, it's numbered backwards. It's numbered the opposite of how you typically read. You typically read left to to right. It's going right to left. And then Broadway cuts down all of this from the upper left-hand corner. If you were to be viewing the city from an aerial view, you're going to see Broadway cut across from the upper left-hand corner to the lower right-hand corner. And post-COVID, so many parts of Broadway are now completely pedestrian. They're closed off too. And and increasingly in some neighborhoods, there are more and more pedestrian-only areas. That was a transition that happened during COVID. Mm -hmm. I lived in a neighborhood called Tribeca, which is just north of the financial district at the lower end of Manhattan. And so many streets that used to have cars on them are now pedestrian only and are now occupied by outdoor cafes, which like the outdoor dining in New York is its own controversy. And we're not going to get into that here. So because of this grid layout of Manhattan, there should theoretically be really easy ways to get around. And part of that is there is infrastructure supporting public transit, a.k.a. the subway and bus system. Yes. And ferries. I never got the ferries. I never got on a bus. I never got on a bus either. I got on a bus once because someone dragged me on them. In other countries, trains, underground subways, trains, whatever you want to call them, and buses are all a totally viable means of transportation. They are reliable. They come on time. They're clean. There's some sort of rhyme or reason to it. In New York, it's barely mitigated chaos 90% Mm -hmm. of the time. So when the subway works... It can be your best friend. No, when the subway works, there's nothing like it. I happen to be a walker. Like if I didn't have to take the subway, I wouldn't. Most people are not as insane as I am. I would walk three miles to go to a doctor appointment if it was a nice day and I had the option to do it. Now, in some cases, you just need to take it. So post-COVID, I hadn't been on the subway and I was teaching this class. It was downtown. And normally I would have walked, but it was raining. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to try the subway. Now, the first day I walked like half a block. The train's pulling up. I hop on the train. I transferred at 14th to the 2-3 because I wanted to get the express line, get down to Wall Street, get off, get into my class. Takes me like 10 minutes door to door. And by the way, there is a high you get when you time everything right. You're like, oh, wow. I just like won the universe. Now that was all fine and dandy. Next day I go show up, walk down into the subway and I notice off the bat, like, oh shit, there's a lot of people there. That is never a good sign. You never want to see lots of people waiting for the subway because it means that there's probably something going wrong. Mm. Anyway, they have these signs that update and they tell you when the train is going to come. And so usually like the one will come every six minutes and it's not a good sign when there's nothing up there, right? It means that something's going on and they don't exactly know. So I'm sitting there and you see like the uptown train is coming and you have an uptown train go by, next one comes, next one comes. And I'm like, shit, what do I do? I mean, I've already, I've been waiting there for like 15 minutes. Do I cut my losses? Do I like get up and I walk to 14th street? Do I get out, hop on a cab? Like, I don't want to be late. So apparently what happened is there was some kind of incident. Like a lot of times there will be incidents. Someone like jumps on the subway tracks or- Or they just break. A, the subway break, just break down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This or is an break. ancient system that but has they not been modernized. You. This is what bothers me. I was like, you know, just make an announcement. Like there was an incident that happened. Or they do make an announcement. It's like- yeah, like you, <laughs> you can't, can't understand, understand what they're saying. <laughs> but like, because then you, you people just need information. Like that's what would bother me. It's yeah. like just tell you me what's going on. You can make an decision. I can make. I can stop out of a bad trade if I know that this yes. is going nowhere yes. and go get a cab. But if a train's going to show exactly. up in two minutes, I'm going to feel exactly. like an idiot. I don't get the lows. Yeah. Yes. So that is just something to be aware of that like when you're taking the subway, it can work beautifully, but there is going to be situations. And so if your goal is to get to work on time, you don't want to show up late. And by the way, like if you're late once and it's just a once in a blue moon thing, okay. 
But if this happens consistently, that starts to be a problem. So, or you got to be like me and just let everyone know that you're just going to be late and you don't give a yeah. shit. <laughs> well, you, if you do that, like first day on the desk, I mean, that's not, it's a not good a good look. look. You have it's to not have a good already, look. don't do it guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do it. You have do to already say, have established that you actually are bringing value as you put it as a first year analyst, like as you're proving yourself, you don't gotta, do don't do it. You do not want to be late. So going back to our grid system, the great thing about the grid is that the subway lines tend to run along the avenues. So they Mm -hmm. tend to serve really well for you to get uptown and downtown. They do not serve you well if you're trying to get crosstown. It is very difficult to get crosstown on the subway. There's only so many places where they go along the streets. So that's going to really impact your decision on where to live. Listen, walking is always free. If you can live Mm -hmm. walking distance from your office, that may be an option to you. A monthly unlimited subway pass costs something like 130 bucks. And I just want to add, like a lot of times if you're at a bank, there's often going to be discounts you can get on the subway pass as well. So you can like put pre-tax dollars towards it. which Like an HSA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. So it ends up being what? Like 50 to 60 to $70, I mean, per month. And that's, that's nothing. That's great. Exactly. To be able to get around. But Just know that it's unreliable and you kind of need to bake that (laughs) into your daily scheduling if you want to be Mm -hmm. on time for your job. And so thinking about that grid, there's going to be efficiencies in terms of cost, in terms of areas of the city that are more affordable to live in. And the most affordable areas tend to be along the east side, specifically the lower east side and the upper east side. And it's no coincidence that these were also the areas of the city that were least served by the subway system until at Mm -hmm. least recently. After I moved, they yeah. finally completed the Second Avenue I, subway on the east side. Have you ever been it? Yes, once. But I was living uh-huh. so after I left my midtown location where we were both mm-hmm. in Times Square. Right. I moved to the Upper East Side. I was an eighty-first between first and second, and it was at least like a fifteen-minute walk to get to either. Like I could take the eighty-sixth Street on Lexington, mm-hmm. or I could take one on seventy-seventh. But it was at least a fifteen-minute walk. Right. It, it, it was, was this. It was always a joke that it was this never-ending municipal mm-hmm. project that was just never going to get done, and it has been right. completed. But as a result of the East Side being kind of just like a transportation desert, there's all these things that go into it, and we don't need to talk about like the socioeconomics of city planning. But so because of those inefficiencies, the Lower East Side and the Upper East Side have at least over the past twenty-five years been the most affordable from a rent standpoint for young people coming into the city. So that tends to be a hub. Um, Murray Hill, which is north of the Lower East Side, um, but still on the east side, is another big hub that's kind of like 33rd and 3rd. That's a big magnet for people who are young just coming into the city as well. Stuyvesant uh, Stuyvesant Village over on the far east side, getting closer to the water, has relatively affordable rents, things like that. So be thoughtful about how transportation is going to factor in. Walking is free. Subway, we're talking on the order of like 130 bucks a month for an unlimited subway pass. And now we get into taxis and Ubers. When I lived in the city, Ubers were like just kind of mm-hmm. becoming a thing. Now they're ubiquitous and like the taxi culture is adrift. But mm-hmm. the problem is, is post-COVID because so many people didn't want to ride the subways during and frankly, now after COVID, there's been so much in the news about the subways. Because the subways have become so undesirable to ride for many people, there's a preponderance of Ubers and people trying to get taxis. And 
so much traffic. There's more car traffic than ever in Manhattan. Yeah. That has made it really expensive and really inefficient to get around that way. So it is worth noting that if you are working in banking and you are staying routinely later than 10 p.m., banks often will pay for you to have an Uber home. You know, these banks from a certain standpoint are like, okay, if we're sending people home at two in the morning, maybe we need to be a little bit thoughtful yeah. corporate <laughs> citizens um, about how they get home. I lived in Tribeca towards the lower end and I was working in midtown Manhattan. So I had to yeah. go about 40 or 50 blocks to get to work every day. And I felt totally fine taking a taxi on a gross day because by the way, the subways are not air conditioned. And it was like 15 bucks in the morning and I could be there reliably in about eight to 13 minutes. Nowadays, you can try to get an Uber. You might get dropped a bunch of times. You might be able to get a taxi, but they're fewer and further between. You could get stuck in traffic for an indeterminate amount of time. It can yeah. cost you 25 to $50 just to go a relatively short distance. And the likelihood that you'll get there on time is minimal. So it's pretty right. inadvisable for young people starting out to rely on that as a form of transportation. What you can potentially rely on is there is something called city bike. So there's bikes that are sort of set up all around the city and mm -hmm. you, with your subway card can go, you get a bike, you ride your bike, you go essentially park it back at one of the locations the where you get to the destination mm -hmm. and poof, you're able to ride that way. Or you're poof, able to sort of she get says, you also are riding a bike through, I mean, you're, the you most are, congested, you crazy traffic conceivable. I know I talk about Brian too much, but my brother has a foldy bike. He has a bike that you literally can fold up. It's called the Brompton. He rides it all over the city on his first date with his now wife. And he, by the way, is like six foot five. He looks ridiculous. This bike is like super small, but Bromptons are everywhere. And by the way, so my, my sister-in-law, I'm like, I can't believe she went on another date with you. Not only was she making fun of him, but then later she bought herself a Brompton. She rides her Brompton everywhere. That's how she gets to work and back. And they she continued like to ride that when she was pregnant. She's 38 weeks pregnant and was like riding it around. So yeah, you can also so get a foldy bike, but the city bike is, is a good option. If you're going to get around on anything that is a moped, a bike, anything like that, we did have a friend in the city who has a Vespa. But yeah, do so at your own peril. It is mm -hmm. very, very dangerous. I would definitely get a helmet. I know it's going to Oh my gosh, of cool, course get like, a helmet. Please get a helmet. What yeah, do you mean it's not cool? Helmet. The idea of riding Sorry. anything without a helmet. I agree, but I mean like you most people I see riding around on city bikes don't have helmets on. They should. Crazy. That's crazy. I mean just I'm just saying have get yourself a helmet. Here, like the lime scooters or whatever in South End and yeah. the number of drunk people riding scooters getting concussions every week is insane. I can um, imagine. Which brings us to our next topic, which is healthcare costs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For all your concussions. Yes, 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 um, yes. Well, so no, just to wrap that up. So basically what we're trying to convey here is, listen, you're going to have to navigate this matrix of location relative to work, cost relative to location, and then navigating how all that fits together with the efficiency of you getting to work in a cost-effective way. Yes. We've talked about upfront housing costs. We've talked about transportation costs and the limitations there. Let's talk about healthcare now because mm -hmm. one of the great things about working in the financial services industry is that usually you actually have pretty good benefits. Problem yeah. is- that doesn't necessarily always help you in New York City. <laughs> when I moved to Charlotte, I was shocked. We have like two main hospital systems here. You kind of plug into one, you plug into the other. It doesn't matter. You put your handprint down. It can access your whole medical record. They're like, oh, you saw this person. Now we're going to see this person. I remember trying to just like find a general practitioner doctor in New York. I, I waited years <laughs> 
before doing it because I was like, this is too hard. You had to like know someone who would like get you a referral to the best people. And then none of those people are in network. So if you want a good doctor in quotes, most of these people don't accept whatever health insurance you have. And you have to like get on a list to get an audience with the Pope to get in with them. It's crazy. I, well, it's funny. I actually didn't have that experience. I have had it here in Massachusetts, though I can't get a doctor oh, here. Oh, really? But yeah, oh, in, in New York, crazy. I didn't have, I did have to wait because um, I found a doctor I really liked and then that she mm-hmm. left. Then I found another doctor and they switched to concierge and I mean, it, what the concierge doctor situation is, is you basically have to pay like $1,000 a year yep. to see them. I was like, I don't need that level of service. I just want to get a physical once a year. Yep. yep, yep. Uh, and so then I did find someone and I had to wait four or five months. But for a lot of the other doctors, I didn't have as much of a problem. But I will say that healthcare is something that I think a lot of people who are entering the job force just don't realize can be as expensive as it is. And so there is good news for our analysts out there. So in 2008, as part of Obamacare, which is also referred to as the Affordable Care Act, you basically can stay on your parents' health insurance until you're 26. Yay. But I mean, look, if you're listening to this and you're an international student, nope. If you are a associate and you're over 26, nope. So now you have, you have to get your own health insurance. So as Jen put it, a lot of these banks tend to offer pretty decent health coverage. Yeah. And by the way, so in New York City, there's some great things about it because, for example, they will cover IVF for people who are not able to get pregnant. That's an amazing thing that is mandated. Well, but guess what? It has to be paid for somehow. So the cost of health insurance in New York City is quite high. And so I went to work for this smaller company and they paid at the time like 20% of my premium. Nowadays, I think uh, the law is like you have to pay 50% of the premium. But mm. if the insurance that's offered through your employer is $1,000 a month and they're paying 50% of it, that's $500 that is still coming out of your paycheck on a pre-tax basis, but it's still coming out of your paycheck. And by the way, this is also a true story. So what I did is I was dating my now husband at the time. We literally went down to the courthouse and I was living with him. So we filed to be domestic partners so I could get on his health insurance because I had just such terrible health insurance. So the, the moral of the story is that you are likely going to have as part of a large corporation, pretty good benefits when it comes mm-hmm. to healthcare coverage. Yeah. So you're not going to have to probably worry about it as much. However, it still is something that it's worth having on your radar. And, and you a lot of these sort of large corporations still have very high deductible plans. Exactly. Oh, that's another good point. A thousand percent. High, yeah, yeah. You oh, may yes. still be paying mm-hmm. out of pocket for the first three, four, yes. five, six, yeah, seven thousand yeah. dollars yeah. of your medical yeah, yeah. expenses that so, year. So it can mm-hmm. add up. Oh, it can. Yeah. I had a high deductible plan and mm-hmm. I literally just went to see my doctor. I was like, I need an annual physical. She happened to run some tests that she's like, do you want to do this? And I was like, sure. Why not? Like, make sure that I'm all healthy. You know, it's all good. I think I got like a $2,000 bill for that. And I was just oh, like, easily. Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So your doctor doesn't know your specific insurance situation. And like, if you're on a high deductible plan, you're probably going to have to be paying for everything. Also, yep. don't go to the ER. <laughs> go see a doctor. Do you're going to pay like $500. They have urgent just care walk into- That's true. Urgent care is the best. But do we not go to the ER when I was unless you're dying. And I went to the ER all the time. Not all the time. <laughs> but I like went a bunch. I no, because it's, it's like $500 to walk in the door. So things add up. And there's these expenses that you are not budgeting for, not planning for. And they're probably going to hit you. So speaking of things that you are planning for, though, Mm -hmm. one thing that is definitely going to be reality for a lot of our listeners is student loans. And the reality is, is when you see that huge salary number, 
many people might think, oh my gosh, I can finally pay off my student loans. Probably not. Not for a while. Yeah. <laughs> probably not for a while. Time. You're probably still going time. to be carrying that cost. And it's especially burdensome for people who are coming in as associates who may mm. still have undergraduate student loans. You know, I hope my husband doesn't kill me for talking about this, but he graduated from Wharton and started his first day on the desk as an associate at Lehman Brothers the day we went under. So he had $150,000 in student loans. Again, he had been promised this nice Mm -hmm. salary, but he was in jeopardy of not even getting that base salary to be able to afford his payments to just sustain these loans and stay current, let alone live, let alone pay for his apartment where he was yeah. living behind a curtain. He yeah. was staring down the barrel of moving back in with his mom, who was a single mom in Maryland. So, right. I mean, those student loans can be no joke. We are very sensitive to that. I was yeah. fortunate enough to not be in the position that I had student loans, but you had them, Kristen, and that's a very real I thing. did. Yeah. And I mean, I was lucky. Well, I was lucky and stupid. I graduated in 2006 with a five and five eighths interest rate and more on than I am. I don't think I ever refinanced, but at the time, I think I had like $40,000 of student loans and I just was sort of paying it down slowly. Like when I would get my bonus, I would sort of chip away at it. Now, had I been smart, I would have refinanced and then had a much lower interest rate because if you guys don't remember like the history of what happened with rates in 2008, they dropped significantly because of the whole financial crisis situation. So with people who are graduating now though with student loans, rates move around. They probably tend to have higher rates if you're taking it out now. If you took it out though, when you started, the good news is you probably have low interest rates. So, you know, it might not be the worst thing just to kind of continue to make the payments as you need to. A lot of people keep their student loans if they're at very, very low rates. It's just not worth it to pay it down. Well, because think about the difference. It's like if you're getting money in your pocket and you can now go invest it, like you could put it in a T-bill and you're getting five You're a little mini bank. It's called net interest margin. Right, right, right. And then your student loans, if you're paying like 2%, well, it probably makes sense to just keep that for a little bit. So anyway- Not advice, but like, let's just look at some math. Yeah. So student loans, again, that is going to eat into your disposable income that you're going to actually be able to then play with. And so now we're going to get to the fun stuff. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I know. So we've talked about housing. We've talked about transportation. We've talked about all the unsexy stuff like student loans and medical bills. Mm -hmm. Clothes. You need to show up to work, not naked. So (laughs) listen, I think we should address this up front that there have been huge cultural shifts around the conversation about clothes in the workplace. And I'm here for it. Okay. You can now apparently wear a sweatshirt on the floor of the U.S. Senate. So there is a lot that's happening culturally that's shifted, but call me a traditionalist. There is something to be said for dressing for the job you want, not the job you have. And regardless of, we talked about this earlier, regardless of what kind of society we, we might want to live in, there are the realities of the society that we actually live in that mean that more formal business attire is still a way of showing respect and dressing in a more formal way certainly won't hurt your career on Wall Street, all right? But the good news is, is that the startup costs associated with clothing have not risen commensurate with all these other costs because of the shift in perception and and honestly, just like technological breakthroughs in the world of clothing. You know, when I started on the trading floor at Lehman Brothers, we had business formal as our required attire. So I went out and bought a bunch of boxy, Tahari suits that at the time felt like they cost a fortune. They were very structured and they were very formal. Nowadays, Kristen, you turned me on to these beyond yoga mm-hmm. workout dresses. Everyone talks about like, wear this from day to night. You could wear this from day to night. I could oh, yeah. go hard again over this and be totally acceptable going into a bank. My husband hey, still works yeah. on the trading floor of a major bank. Do you know what the men wear? 
they wear uh, like a button down shirt on the top and then they wear hiking pants that literally like <laughs> zip off at the knee should you need to convert them to shorts in an emergency, okay? This is not business formal, guys. So there yeah. has been so much relaxation in terms of what the dress codes are and there's been such a shift in terms of making this athleisure or like nice clothes that are made out of yoga pant material so you can be comfortable and it doesn't yeah. cost a fortune, okay? You yeah. can spend $100 on an outfit and be fine for work. Whereas I mean, you could spend less like than that. Massive barriers to entry. Yeah. Absolutely. You could go to Zara. Zara has some really great work attire. So mm-hmm. you can definitely get your wardrobe for an amount that's not going to break the bank. As we've established, like you're probably not going to have that much money left over from your signing bonus. That's exactly So right. Zara is, is great. I mean, then once you get your actual end of year bonus, then you can maybe start to invest in some almost like investment pieces. I mean, Jen, I know you turned me on to Veronica Beard, much mm-hmm. more expensive. Also, you're going to buy it and you'll probably have it for like 10, You'll 20, have it forever. Like you'll you have know, it forever. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Our grandmother's generation, yeah. everyone had like a Chanel jacket. You can get like a nice Veronica Beard blue blazer for $700 and you can drape that over the back of your chair at work. And it's not like you're going to wear it every day and get it sweaty and have to get a dry clean and stuff like that, but only have that on hand for like, oh, I need to go run and meet a client, right? That's a very common thing for people to do. And also one place where you don't have to spend a ton of money. Unfortunately, we started our careers right after the heyday of sex in the city. So everyone's like, shoes. Mm -hmm. So it was this thing that women were spending five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars plus on heels to wear at work. And that was like part of a status symbol. The dress code, yeah. Fitting in with the dress code. Now, flats are fine. And there are so many affordable flat options that are business appropriate. It is beyond fine. And it really syncs up nicely with our whole plan of saving money, riding the subway Mm -hmm. and walking around to work rather than being, I I had this like working girl thing going on where I was wearing like my giant orange Asics running shoes or my grimy flip flops and then shoving Mm -hmm. them in my giant purse. Oh, and let me talk about purses because (laughs) those of you who know me, I do not like purses. I have never understood why people like purses. I see it as so burdensome. And so with my like very first bonus check, my fr- my, my freshman year, my <laughs> analyst year at Lehman, I went out and bought what was like a $300 bag, which was the most I could justify spending on a bag in my mind. And when I started my job at Morgan Stanley, I went out to a cocktail party the very first week and I had this in the words of succession, ludicrously capacious bag looped over my shoulder. And I was holding a glass of red wine in that hand. And someone walked by me and jostled me. And this huge bag slipped down to my elbow. I launched this entire glass of red wine onto the shirt of the head of FX trading. I have never been so mortified in my life. He looked like he'd been stabbed. And I was like, this is why I don't carry purses. So (laughs) the moral of the story is, is you do not need to carry a purse. I actually have a fanny pack now that I love. It's like my favorite thing. Um, I just do the Lululemon bags. My husband has bought me for big anniversaries, nice uh-huh. bags. And I always go with my Lululemon bag. But like, have you worn your bag at all? And I'm like, I have the no, Lululemon fanny pack. Oh, it's like nice. the suburban mom starter kit thing. Oh no, I, I have. Wilderness family. Yeah, yeah, no, I have Yours the like shoulder just, strap. Mine is the one that's the, you get for free when you buy it. Oh, like a Lululemon shopping bag. Nice. Shopping bag. That was what I wore everywhere because it was so light. Yeah. Yeah, because it's so light. Because again, as a walker who walks everywhere, I always need my water. I always need my phone. That's it. Mm -hmm. But 
I don't want to have the extra weight of a bag because it's really bad for your posture. It's bad for your back. May so I like, recommend the fanny pack. The fanny pack. <laughs> it will change your life. I'm so glad they're back in style. But yeah, so these are things that you used to have to spend money on, guys, that you don't have to spend money on nowadays yeah. to like fit in in the bank. Yeah. So that has yeah. been a huge positive development. Now we got to talk about food because you have to stay uh, yes. alive. And that's very important. So this can be yes. tricky because actually some firms have great perks with respect to this. Mm-hmm. Some yeah. don't. So like mm-hmm. we were joking that people are always like, what questions should I ask at the end of my interview? I'm like, you should ask if your firm gives you free food because that can be a huge <laughs> hack. Again, when I started yeah, at Lemon, analyst, yeah. they had a great cafeteria, but the managing directors had their own special cafeteria with like a private chef. And I was like, I'm sorry, listen, I'm not a socialist or anything like that, but why are the people who are making the most money getting this awesome free food or whatever? And us plebes down here are going to the cafeteria or whatever. So Mm -hmm. it was so nice. There was this guy, Chal Taylor, who actually was the first person who interviewed me back at Princeton. But he used to come out of the MD cafeteria every day with a stack of cookies this high and put it on the corner of his desk. So when I first started, I was like, I'm going to keep a really tight budget for food because I was paying so much for rent. And remember, again, starting analyst salaries were $60,000, not $100,000. My monthly rent was $2,000 a month. So let's all do the math. I definitely was really, really struggling. $24,000 going just to rent. Exactly. We didn't even factor taxes. Yeah. Exactly. So... I set a budget for myself of $10 a day for food. And to my credit, I managed to stick to it for a month or two before it all went out the window. And this is not, by the way, recommended advice. This do is not do this. The insanity of trying this. to do this. But yeah. so I would get the 10 packs of like little yogurts or whatever from the grocery store. Then I would go to the Lehman cafeteria for lunch. And whatever I could fit into one of those plastic clamshells, like a small one from the salad bar, I knew would never add up to more than $10. So I would just shove as much stuff as I could in there. Is that like the still styrofoam thing? Small. Is that called no, the they, were, they were plastic. They're clear. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I never heard of called yeah. a clamshell before. I thought it was like an actual clamshell. No, 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 no. Um, so yeah, into the, the clear plastic clamshell that you then weigh at the end of the salad bar. Then I would supplement the missing calories with 10 cookies from the end of mm-hmm. Chow Taylor's desk. And because I was in a role where I was still a junior, I would end up staying late a lot of the times. And if you stay past a certain hour, a lot of banks will give you a nightly allowance for food. And I had something like a $30 allowance. So then I would just order $30 That's more than people get now. Back in our day, it was $25 to $30. Today, it's between 20 and 25. It's like right, gone right. down. Well, probably the, because there were people like me who were just taking advantage of it, just like sticking around. Oh, you and everyone. Not just hungry. you. Every single person who's an analyst tends to do that. And not yeah. only are they going to be getting their meals that way, they're also usually going to use the credit of people who leave. They're like, hey, you're leaving. Can I use your meal credit? Now, I, we're not encouraging anything like that. that no, 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 like, uh, yeah. That sounds no. unscrupulous. But yeah, so... I mean, work whatever hacks you can within the system of your firm. There is no shame. So a lot of the bigger banks, well, you're not going to get necessarily free food during the day, although you might. By the way, I have worked at pretty much most banks all over the street. So I know where they have the free food and where they don't. But there was one bank in particular that they had a cafeteria and you just, you go in, you get your food and you walk out the door. You don't have to pay for anything. 
we were joking. Like there's no such thing as a free lunch. Up. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Except at this one. Except day. there is. And um, a lot of and I, I do want to also add most buy side firms, so private equity firms, hedge funds, they Bloomberg's are also have a lot of food. always had and Bloomberg lying around. Yes. They have like the best yes. snack bars. I forgot about that. Because during yes. training, you would go to Bloomberg and they would like mm-hmm. show you how to use these like terminals and everything. And they had all this free food. And so I remember oh. when we went. Everyone would just like take a lot of the free food. That's home. right. It was like yeah. a mass yeah, theft yeah. operation. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, I tripped and I shoved like six bags of Cheetos into my bag. Where did these like, come from? Yes, exactly. exactly. But so depending on where you have landed. But that's what I'm saying. That's why people should mm-hmm. be asking this in their interview question. Like, <laughs> am I going to get free food on the desk? Right. Like, it factors into your monthly budget when you're knowing how much your effective table might- pay is. I might wait until you have the offer instead of being like, <laughs> so I'm super interested in your company, but also like, do you have free food? So yeah, I would. <laughs> I, I would just ask, is the food in the cafeteria any good? And let them. Uh, That's let them true. Leave. That's true. That is actually, yes, that is a great question to ask instead. Is the food in the cafeteria good? That's a better way of trying to get them to answer the question you're really asking while not sounding like I'm here for the food. That's exactly so. right. Which I secretly am. Um, And so last but not least, that kind of gets us into the category of entertainment and discretionary spending. So listen, the whole point of being in New York City isn't just to work at this really high paying job so you can afford your really high cost of living. You want to go out. You want to enjoy the city. You're in what so many people think of as like the nexus of the universe. You want to take advantage of it with the $5 you have left over after (laughs) you've gone and paid for all these things. So we know what it feels like when you show up and you're all of a sudden back in freshman week in college and you've got your new analyst class of whatever it is, a hundred people, your new best friends, and you guys all want to go out and have fun. So understand that you're going to have to budget for a lot of entertainment and Mm -hmm. lifestyle type spending. This is before talking about any hobbies, fitness classes that you might want to take. And just to give you a sense of how much you might be spending on fitness classes, if you're going to individual classes, they can be $40. Sixty dollars. I mean, some of the Soul Cycle stuff was like eighty bucks. Now you That's can. Insane. It is insane. Now again, this is where some of the perks come in. So your, I know at Morgan Stanley, we had discounts that we would get at a New York sports club or a Equinox. And so you can actually get memberships at some of these gyms for less money. There's oftentimes gyms in the actual building itself. Mm-hmm. By the way, I used to be a big fitness person. We'll talk about this later. Now I'm just saying I walk around everywhere person. And by the way, New York City, greatest place to just walk around or bike around. I mean, it's amazing. So you don't have to spend tons of money. You can, you don't have to. And if you do choose to do some of these more expensive things, it can add up really fast. I mean, just do the math. You're going to a $40 class a few times a week. That's a couple hundred dollars a week versus you get your discounted gym membership or you just walk everywhere, which is my personal method of exercise these days. So that's exactly right. You know, one thing that was kind of ubiquitous when I was working on the trading floor was a lot of the women would go get manicures and pedicures after work together. And I, you guys will see it. Like I never do anything with my nails. I actually don't like them, but I got into that because it was actually a way to like bend the ear of senior women sometimes and get an audience with them. People always joke about like the old boys club, like, oh, unless you play golf with the managing director, you're not going to get his ear. This was my way of playing golf with the managing director. I'd go get a pedicure (laughs) with someone. Although let's not sell you short. You also did learn to play golf. I love golf. I play not well, but with much enthusiasm. Um, (laughs) But so I think we've kind of covered most of the different basic categories that go into your startup costs of beginning your job. In subsequent episodes, I think we're going to try to touch on a bit more of the nuances of the lifestyle associated with the job, living in New York, all that fun stuff beyond just day one of getting your foot in the door. 
But hopefully this gives you a little bit of an understanding of, hey, listen, everyone thinks that bankers are paid so much at such a young age for doing what? And it's like, there's this circularity. Uh, it's a circular reference, right? Just like right, you have right, in, right. Your, in your Excel <laughs> spreadsheets. Well, why do you want to work in New York City? Well, I want access to high paying jobs. Why do you have to have a high paying job in New York City? To afford the cost of living in New York City because otherwise you can't live there, right? It becomes right, a right. circular logic. And this is where a lot of people will find that after quite some time, it's not like it lets up because mm. once you start moving up through the ranks, you'll find that it the goalposts are always shifting. It's never, oh, now I have enough money to live like a first year analyst when I've been working for 10 years. Your lifestyle yeah. is going to change. And so well, people get caught up in this constant rat race where the goalposts are moving. Well, yeah. And I think it's it's not even so much necessarily that the goalpost moves, although they, they, they do. It's as you get into other stages of your life, like having children, they are expensive. They are really expensive. Childcare costs. I mean, you need a room for them. And we've already established how much the extra bedroom costs. Then you have just actually keeping them alive and entertaining them and sending them to school. You also might need a car. And so the amount that you burn through if you stay in the city can get very high very quickly. So that's where people sometimes might move. Yeah, exactly. But so so that brings us into kind of some bigger cultural questions that I think we'll want to tease out in subsequent episodes. Hopefully this episode was helpful. We are not here to give you tax advice. We're not here to no. necessarily tell you how to run your lives. But these are things that if you don't have mentors and advocates in the system and in the city already looking out for you, you just might not know on your own. So mm -hmm. hopefully this is helpful. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 